don't. Let's get it on tape. Yeah, everything is content. Don't you understand? <laughs> your life is not your own anymore. Got it. Yeah, I save. Well, I'm really bad about it because I have Twitter and our Discord. So all my takes are already out in the ether. Well, that's not true. Like, I try to have much more measured and uh, quote unquote thoughtful takes when we record. But on Twitter and on Twitter and Discord, I am uh, a wild man. I am unleashed, <laughs> unhinged. So that's the worst part, too, because you're unhinged. And I'm like, I've got what, 160 characters to to respond. And you're like, ah, I don't care. Like, I'm just I'm just <laughs> stirring the wild here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My friend uh, Rich uh, Lacoste is also feeling the brunt of that lately. <laughs> Unfo- unfortunate for him. But he does listen to the show occasionally, so, so. Rich, I'm sorry. I, I can't help myself. <laughs> so. um, like the handful of times like I've been on Discord, he was one of the few that like I had a a long conversation with. Yeah, he's always, I don't know him personally, but he seems insightful. Yeah, he's uh, also a libertarian. So and he lives in this area, so maybe you'll meet him one day. He's a good dude. But yeah, I I both both of us are willing to get in the mud in the dirt so it it devolves into a train wreck very quickly (laughs) good times speaking of train wrecks baseball's about what three hours ago the first week of baseball got canceled and that entire thing has been a train wreck really since the covid season when it took them three months to decide if they wanted to play or not yeah that was kind of the harbinger yeah yeah Yeah, you knew it was going to be bad just based off how the dialogue was going then. Why? So. I don't understand why this, like it's for sure canceled the first week of the season. Like what's the time? Like, why can't they just <laughs> negotiate up until the first day of the season? Like, why is it like, okay, for sure it's canceled. Well, money is power would be the shortest answer and a bit of a straw man. So the thing is the owners locked them out. So what they could right. have done is they could have said, Hey, we're going to keep negotiating in good faith. We're not going to lock you out. You're not going to go on strike. And the season is going to carry on under the old rules until we agree to something different. But they didn't do that. And then, in my opinion, and it's not even like that controversial of an opinion, they set an arbitrary date because they set it really out of nowhere of 28 February to be the last day of negotiation before games started getting canceled. And it was really just to try to force the issue and hopefully make the players scramble to accept terms that otherwise weren't agreeable. Right. And then, sure. Yeah. The really, I really just, like, good. No, I just don't understand why. Like, I understand they like use it as a negotiating tactic, but it obviously failed. So like, why now it's just like, okay, it's like, it's like a um, breakfast club where he's like, you're you're in detention for a week, mister. And he's like, okay. And he's like, that's another week. Like, that's just what it seems like. They're just doing it to do it. Like, it doesn't, it's not like there's some, it's not like, like reconciliation on the budget or whatever, where like they have to do it by a date or nothing gets funded. It's like, they still have plenty of time where they don't need to cancel games, but they're just going to oh, do yeah. it. Anyway. Yeah, they totally do. And yeah, and, and I think the hope is basically, yeah. I mean, they're just going to, so now they say, hey, we canceled a week. So now the players aren't going to get paid for that week. Right, um, and the players are like, "Oh, good, something else to negotiate over," because <laughs> we're not accepting that. But here's—I don't know, man. Like, at the end of the day, like all but four owning entities of, of major league baseball clubs are billionaires, and they need baseball less um, to you know keep up their lifestyle than the players do. So at the end of the day, I think the only thing that's really going to change baseball forever and for better would be if former players who made a killing playing formed ownership groups and started owning franchises. And then that would be the best thing. But otherwise it's just a business venture with, in this situation, owners making kind of silly arguments about how unprofitable and unlucrative it is to own a franchise. Yeah. Uh, I saw a tweet from Jeff Passan who kind of demolished that entire argument. So yeah, obviously, I'm not a baseball fan if anybody follows my Twitter or knows me personally. You block people who are because you're a jerk. I don't block. And I don't think I block anybody on Twitter. You've, well, okay. You've deleted like I, I, 90% I of my content. You, <laughs> you block. <laughs> I, I mute out certain words so I don't see them on my feed all the time. But I definitely <laughs> don't block people. Yeah, but it still sucks, man. Like baseball is... 
I don't want to say an old people's sport, but it skews older already. The demographic already skews yes. older. They don't get a lot of kids interested in watching baseball. It's more of a, the fathers of the country make their kids watch baseball and have that passion yes. with them. Whereas football is more popular than ever. And it's kind of the reverse. Like most parents are telling their kids not to play football. Yeah. So it's an interesting strategy for the MLB to try to cancel a season when they need to be doing everything they can to improve the product on the field. And you can't, and you, you can't improve the product on the field if there is no product on the field. Well, and I think that's two things like then they seem to not understand that, that in the broadest sense, they're in the entertainment industry and there are so many more options for entertainment now than there were any time, anytime there's a work stoppage. The other thing, I don't know, it's just frustrating at the end of the day, I'm selfish. I'm a fan. I want what I want. I don't care about the players or the owners in the grand scheme of things um, and in this sense. But every player is making an argument to make the game better. Like they're, yeah. they're not saying, like, give me more money personally. It's like, hey, collectively, you need to give us more money because when you don't, you got 10 teams tanking, and that's not good for baseball. Yeah. So it's – yeah, and that's that's what it kind of – that's where the owners derive a lot of their power on top of what you mentioned with the money is that the fans just want to see the sport being played. They don't care who's right or who's, who's more right and who's more wrong. At the end of the day, they just want to see the product on the field. And so that always helps the owners more than the players. Like it's always like, Oh, the players are selfish, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, it's, it's always the, the owners, uh, the billionaires who are, you know, being being a little too greedy generally most of the time. Well, I mean, in this sense, again, like the owners didn't have to lock them out. They didn't have to cancel, you know, spring training games. They didn't have to cancel regular season games. In the mid-90s, it, it, you can make the same argument. The players didn't have to uh, go on strike in September, mm-hmm. August, September. Like, yeah. But it's, again, like I'm all about what makes what makes baseball better. And what would make baseball better is 20 to 30 competitive teams as opposed to 10 to 15. Mm. And it just, and again, both sides are arguing for self-interest. I don't, I don't, I don't have like this great moral stake in who's morally right and who's morally wrong. They're both acting for self-interest and that's fine. It's okay. You can admit, you can admit that you're always for the workers. Okay. (laughs) It's okay. It's not, it's not communism. It's okay. (laughs) I'll say in this case, my interest is tied to the interest of the, the workers. So, I, I am very much for them. As it should be. As it should be. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to talk 10 minutes about baseball, but it is what it is. I don't know anything about how the, like, there's obviously no salary cap. I think there's a luxury tax maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have a salary floor, like a minimum you have to spend on your team? Because that's how they do it in, in football is that you you have to spend a certain amount of money on your team. That's how That's kind of why nobody really tanks in the NFL, they, they do, but not to the same extent as other sports. Because you have to spend so much money no matter what, you might as well try to win every game. Well, you're clearly you, not a Dolphin you can. fan to suggest the teams don't tank. Because I have it on, on semi-good authority that we, some we don't, we don't know that yet. And they <laughs> still won like five or six games that year. And he got fired three years later. So. <laughs> no, well, and, and they don't. And that, so that's the big thing. And, and, and we won't get into the details because nobody cares. But like they have revenue sharing in baseball. So that way, in theory, small market teams are not as 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 much of a competitive disadvantage because they get some of the money from big market teams. But the problem is it makes it profitable for an owner to not actually try to sell a good product because he'll 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 still be able to turn a profit and his right. franchise continues to increase in value. And that's where the problem is. But you're never going to get them to agree to a salary floor. It's it's OK. You, you can say the Pirates, the Pirates owner. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's the Royals, too. Right. Like. In the last nine years, his franchises went up over 13% annually. And then they're yeah. going to try to say that, like, it's better to put money in the stock market. Yeah. Good luck. Like, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I would agree to a salary floor. I agree with the draft lottery. I agree with a lot of things that make it impossible to not try to win. Yeah. That might be another uh, podcast episode of a, of a lighthearted nature where we just discuss what's wrong with sports. It needs to be because I know there's some people listening like, isn't this guy a Braves fan and didn't they lose on purpose and just win the World Series because that's a good strategy? And I've got good arguments to counter that. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. I, yeah, I'm interested in that from the football perspective and the basketball perspective. 
but yeah, that, that's a topic for another time. And I think we spent enough time on this intro. Welcome to the 1v1 Deep State podcast. Last episode, we were going to do a three-part series on education. And we knew that this looming topic was out there and could disrupt our plans. And it did because Putin's an asshole. So we are not going to continue our education series yet. We're going to delay that probably till next episode, unless something else comes up. Because we have a more pressing episode to talk about, about Ukraine, Russia. Are we going to have World War III? Variety of topics. We already kind of had a China episode. This is the Russia episode. <laughs> and <laughs> But before we get into that, off the top, I'm Jake, at the rake, but the A is a four on Twitter, at Thomas Black underscore 86, at OVO Deep State. Join the Discord. It's in the link below. As we alluded to earlier, we have a friend who is very active on there. I talked to him. We were talking about uh, a Russia topic all this week. Thomas doesn't get on there anymore, even though I tag him all the time. Uh, one of these days, he'll figure out technology. But join the Discord. There's plenty of us in there. Uh, we also talk about gaming. We talk about sports. We talk about food. We talk about new movies and books and all kinds of topics. And you can see me complain about all my schoolwork that I'm currently going through. That kind of floats your boat. But yeah, uh, links below. Join the Discord. Follow us on Twitter. We'll get into our main topic. I think this is a big one. It's a Tuesday night. This is when we record these. I have to wake up early. I have a midterm tomorrow. But I have a feeling this topic is going to go long just because there's a lot of things to say. And I've been talking about it on Twitter and Discord all week. I haven't. I don't think we've interacted too much on Twitter about this topic, have we? Not about Ukraine. And a handful of things like that I've seen you post, I, I agree with quite a bit. Yeah. I think I normally troll you on Twitter, but not for too serious of topics. So I don't, I don't think I've seen you post much on it. But I, yeah, you have. I think you retweeted a couple of things I, I've posted. But yeah, it's mostly... Uh, I think we're mostly in agreement on this topic, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe not on the solutions, but I'm interested in your take. Because I've done nothing but argue about this topic all week with other people. So I'm curious of your take. Nice to know that everybody's got you pissed off now that we get to record and I get to. <laughs> no, not, not pissed off. <laughs> not pissed off. I mean, off the, off the top, I, like we can we can do bottom line up front. Do you think uh, we're going that we're heading towards World War Three? Just quick. We'll, we'll get more in depth later. No, no. Yeah, no. I don't think so either. I don't I don't think. Are we closer to nuclear war? than we have been in a long time, probably since the Cold War ended? Yes. Is that percentage high? No. It's still extremely small chance, given all the factors that I'm sure we're going to talk about. But I just wanted to get that out of the way up front. I don't think either of us are too alarmist about it. But first things first, let's talk about Ukraine, Ukraine side of things. Mm -hmm. Because I think the Russia topic is is much uh, more complicated and we have a lot more to say about it. But from Ukraine's perspective... They want to be in NATO. They want to be in the EU. They want to form all these alliances, both militarily and diplomatically, obviously due to the threat of Russia. And we've seen that become confirmed. But on the flip side of that, what I've seen from detractors of maybe not detractors is the right word, but people who are arguing that the U.S. and NATO have basically forced Russia into this position. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think it's a... a bad argument in general. One, I don't know how often, if ever, has NATO initiated aggression. I mean, the, the closest I can think of recently, and we'll have to get into NATO and, and the Persian cons of that probably at some point later, but I mean, Turkey shot down that airliner a couple of years ago. But as far as uh, NATO being used as a military alliance to occupy another nation, I, I don't know that that's... Here's where I'll, here's where I'll explain the perceived threat of NATO. The U.S. stations offensive and defensive missiles in NATO countries. Yes. So if you're a NATO country, the U.S. is most likely going to station some kind of armament there, which threatens Russia, is the argument, right? It's not outward aggression. It's the ability of aggression. And I've seen it likened to the Cuban Missile Crisis when Russia was going to put nukes in Cuba, basically pointed at DC, you know, 90 miles away from the coast of Florida. So that's what they liken it to, right? It's not necessarily that NATO has been aggressive, literally, it's more their actions are aggressive and provocative, I would say. Yeah. And again, I get that argument, but I think where I would go back to if you liken it to Cuban Missile Crisis is the USSR was uh, proactively conquering other nations, and that's how they grew 
you know, their, their empire. That's how they grew the Soviet Union. They were act, you know, they're active aggressors throughout a good portion of the last half of the 20th century. Whereas NATO, yes, they were putting offensive weapons there in the event that we need to be offensive against mainland Russia. Um, should should war be, you know, the inevitable conclusion? But I, again, I don't I don't know that NATO has ever acted offensively unless it's a reaction to, you know, what's going on someplace in the world. Again, not that I don't like, I won't say I don't completely understand. It. I just think it's a it's a premise built on a hypothetical and not a premise built on a historical reality. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, Ukraine's an independent, sovereign nation, as are we. We can enter into conversation with with them just like they can do with us. Um, same thing with the trade bloc with the EU. And that, that doesn't, and I know you agree with this, and most people agree with this, but that doesn't justify the uh, you know, hostile takeover of another nation because they're making trade packs and military alliances you don't, you don't like. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that. And I think it's like I, the one troll I did do is I tagged you in that tweet from Tulsi Gabbard mm. her, where, where she basically was saying this is the U.S. Like this was the inevitable conclusion based on U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And I liken, I liken, likened, likened it to victim blaming. Like Ukraine has self-determination. They want to join NATO specifically because of the Russian threat to them. And it's been proven correct their assumptions that they were at risk. If the U.S. wanted Ukraine and NATO, the Ukraine would have been in NATO already. Like mm-hmm. this isn't a paper pushing issue, or you know, like we don't we don't want we didn't want Ukraine and NATO for a variety of reasons yet. But we're open, to, quote unquote, we're open to the possibility of it, which we should be. We should be open to the possibility of any country that borders Russia that wants protection wants to form a military alliance to ensure their sovereignty. Uh, but I completely agree with you that like short of active planning of Ukraine to take over parts of Russia, I don't, I don't think there's any just justification that Russia can put out there Yeah, for, for the invasion other than just pretty much straight imperialism. The current line that Putin was saying of denazification is a joke. If anybody, if you don't know, the president of Ukraine right now is Jewish. His his family was part of the like his uh, I think his grandfather mm-hmm. was part of the Holocaust. Yeah. So it's just, it's just a joke that like Russia's coming in to save Ukraine. Yeah, and, and obviously I saw the, the tweet from a uh, from former Congresswoman Gabbard, and I've seen several tweets like it. But but I feel like those arguments seem to overlook is that every aggressor or hostile actor or to paint more broadly evil person has always tried to tie moral justification to their evil act to make it more palpable for those who are naive or want to believe the best or just need to feel better about being allied to or a citizen of a certain nation. So, I mean, nobody, I don't think in the history of, of, you know, the last two centuries has taken over a country and be like, yeah, we just did it because we don't like them and we wanted their stuff. Like, there's always a, a morality tied to the action which demands that action occur. And so, I mean, of course, they're going to say things like, well, these are ethnic Russians and they're being mistreated. So we have a right to protect our people, which is a history behind that of why they're ethnic Russians and a lot of injustice involved in getting Russians in eastern Ukraine. And they're always going to say, like, oh, we have to do this to protect ourselves from this aggressive, you know, NATO alliance and all of these things. It just doesn't make them true, and it doesn't make them uh, like sound and reasonable just because they're presented with a moralistic tint to it. So that's what bothers me about a lot of people who are trying to, in any way, shape, or form, like simplify this and something. Oh, we'd have done this one thing differently. Russia wouldn't be acting this way. Well, Russia's acted this way since since they were a monarchy. I mean, it's just yeah. It's a, I think it's a uh, complete misunderstanding of who Putin is and what he's been doing over the last twenty years of his rule in Russia. Like, what was what was the U.S. foreign policy decision that that made Putin invade Georgia in two thousand eight? What was the U.S. policy decision that made him invade Crimea in twenty fourteen? Like, nothing has changed. He's been on this path of he's not going to. I don't think literally try to uh, reassemble the USSR, but he's absolutely taking back parts of it that historically were it's kind of like germany and austria right like they were inextricably linked for a long time and the Mm -hmm. first thing hitler did was 
annex Austria, right? So it's yeah. very similar, like Georgia, you part Eastern Ukraine, Crimea. It's very, it's a very similar thing that's happening. It's been happening for nearly two decades. So yeah, I don't this blame of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, we are all over the world, and yeah, we're in people's business. But guess what? Russia would love to be in our position. China is trying to get into our position. Like there's no, there's always going to be someone. I don't think the argument is that maybe the argument is like, we have a moral, we're on a moral, a more moral high ground to be that number one power. But if the U S decided to be non-interventionist and stay in their own yard, somebody else would do it. It's not like we're, we're forcing these countries to be in NATO. Like you said, like these countries want to be in NATO. These countries want us support. These countries want the U S backing of, if we get attacked, we want the U S to come and help. That's again, a lot of this is so like U S like centric thinking of like, Oh, the U S is forcing Ukraine to be in NATO or bribing them or pressuring them to be in NATO. And like, this couldn't be farther from the truth. Again, if the U S wanted Ukraine and NATO, they'd be in NATO already. It's these countries have self-determination. They want the U S help precisely because of, of what Putin's done the last 20 years. Like I think deflecting any blame whatsoever from Putin is wrong. Like it's literally what he is He's been shown that he wants to do. He's done nothing over the last 20 years to disprove all the, I don't want to say propaganda against him, but like whatever it is, like he's, he's, he's the guy that he is. Like when people show you who they are the first time, trust that there's no other way to explain away what Putin is doing. And like, again, shifting the blame onto the U S for their foreign policy, I think is, is silly. Uh, the U.S. isn't blameless by any means for a multitude sure. of of things it's done throughout the world. But again, if we if we aren't being that that number one world power, it's going to be Russia or China. And if you want to uh, take your chances with those people acting more morally than the U.S., that's your prerogative. But uh, I'm never going to believe that. Yeah, and again, I think I think there's a difference between being able to rec- like recognize. It's not our fault that Russia's doing this and, and still say, at least in my position, like I think NATO needs to have significant reforms. I think there's a lot of risk for the United States with the way NATO is currently structured and operated. And I think you can also say like NATO may have outlived its time. I'm not saying I'm, I'm necessarily there, but like it was created specifically to combat the USSR. The USSR is no more, mm-hmm. at least for the time being. Like, So you can disagree with U.S. foreign policy and especially the interventionist aspects of it and still say it's not our fault. Like we, we, you know, if we were taking over parts of Russia by force, then, yeah, we've got some blame there. But we're dealing as a sovereign nation with another sovereign nation. And and, and that doesn't justify takeover, even if it it causes concern or even if it uh, hurts you economically. I mean, and that's kind of what, well, at least in recent history, you know, part of the argument was and what really led to a lot of the reforms in Ukraine was, Putin's, you know, $15 billion bailout um, instead of the Ukrainian government joining the EU, EU then. Um, yeah. That's what, what led to a lot of people saying, we're not, we're not Russia and we don't need to be a puppet for Russia. And then, you know. Yeah. I mean, short history lesson. Uh, they had a revolution in Ukraine because the government was so, was basically a Russian puppet at that point. And the people of Ukraine didn't want that. They had a revolution and they elected their own government. And so since, and that's what led to Crimea uh, mm-hmm. And what where we currently are, and again, I think it's just absolutely insane to blame the U.S. in any way, shape, or form for what Russia is doing. It's clearly, clearly because the they were losing Ukraine to the West, and by, like, yeah, yeah, like to the like they they didn't want that, and like again, we can start shifting to Russia's perspective. Like I get it that a lot of their oil pipelines run through Ukraine, and it's basically a national security issue for them. If Ukraine sees those pipelines, if, if that's what happened and what set all this off, I'm not saying it would be right, but it'd be a much more. It's uh, not a conquistador mentality then at that point. Right. It's a, it's a lot more like we're, it's, it, it's a lot more akin to what the British did to Iran uh, and what we helped them do to Iran in the fifties yeah. uh, when Iran was going to nationalize all their, their oil. Uh, at least you have some sort of like real reason, like you're a 10 and uh, historic reason that people have uh not invaded a country but taken action in a country so 
Yeah, I see. You're, you're preserving your self-interest at that point and not just expanding your territory, territory, yeah, yeah, wealth, yeah. whatever. Without without a good justification, for sure. Yeah. And another big part of this, just you know, in case people you know don't know, I just need reminding, you know, is what, the mid-90s? Because Ukraine used to have nuclear weapons. Um, I yes. mean, they were stationed there from being part of the Soviet Union. In the mid-90s, when they had a pro-Russian government, they gave all their nuclear weapons back with the promise that you'll always respect our sovereignty. Yeah. And then, like we just talked about, they took the $15 billion bailout. Ukrainian people didn't like it, revolted. And now they have no nukes, a non-Russian government, and no really at this point, like no strong deterrent. Yeah. And this is what you get from it. So I say, if you want to look back and try to blame the U.S., I feel like you have to overlook a lot of the last 20, 30 years of their history. Yeah, definitely. And I think you brought up an interesting point. I think in my high school and college years, I think there definitely was a feeling like NATO has outlived its usefulness. And I think it's one of, ironically, one of Trump's biggest uh, accomplishments is getting those NATO, kicking the, kicking the NATO nest and getting those countries to start pitching in more and taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. It's ironic because of the whole Russiagate thing and how he was uh, labeled a, a Putin puppet. But yeah, I think he inadvertently, maybe not inadvertently, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to, I never give that guy, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt. But I think he did kick, you know, kick NATO and get it more into shape. And it's in a better position it was than it was, you know, five years ago, six years ago. So, yeah, it's interesting to see, man. I don't I don't know where like I don't know if NATO if if Ukraine can repel the Russians and get them to the long enough and get them to the peace table and they maintain their sovereignty. I, I think they're a shoe in for NATO. I think that's enough for them to get into NATO. I don't think, obviously, if they concede and are become, become a Russian state, that's not going to happen. But I think what's more interesting about to stay on the NATO topic is that what happened to Ukraine has now kicked Sweden and Finland into gear <laughs> because now they might join NATO. Finland's another country that borders Russia and historically has not had a good relationship with Russia, mm-hmm. but they've also resisted being in NATO. And it's kind of funny that Putin's aggression and his blind aggression, I would say, has led to like not only is Ukraine looking to get or is getting closer to becoming an EU country, they might also get into NATO, but then they're also expanding NATO to Sweden and, and Finland. Like it's all backfired for him on top of costing his country billions of dollars in just two days. Like we've we've erased hundreds of billions of dollars off their stock market. The ruble is useless and like for people who don't think sanctions work, like you're absolutely wrong. This has been devastating. When when Switzerland is on board with sanctioning you, you know you're completely in the wrong. Yeah. Well, again, it's not that sanctions don't work. And I'm sure those people will say they don't. But the reality is sanctions work, but it's the right sanctions that work. It's enough sanctions because if you – I mean if you've got 10 ways to move money and you only sanction five of them, yeah, they really don't work. It's just a headache. I mean you know, there's marginal impact. But when you sanction, you know, significant banks um, and then you get, you know, NATO and EU and you get, you know, I think there's roughly 20 countries who have put significant sanctions on Russia. You just have nowhere to go. And I think I think the interesting because my big concern was is that we're going to put sanctions on them, but it's not going to be enough. And China will pretty much be able to help them out in the short term to where it's not going to actually solve anything. And I think the longer the Ukrainian people can hold on, the more the economy in Russia gets bled. And I mean, they're, they're already having logistics and, and like basic problems like fuel um, in this invasion. So how much more so when you have billions of dollars gone from your economy and you have no way to, 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 to pay for the logistical supply lines you need to successfully invade another nation? Yeah, I think I saw, especially in the early days when they when we – the timeline is like the U.S. And, and others say Russia is amassing troops on the border with intent to Ukraine. People don't necessarily believe it because, you know, Iraq, WMDs, any other scenario where uh, the U.S. the U.S. line was incorrect or, or a lie. Mm-hmm. But it was very clear that they were, <laughs> were amassing troops on the border. Nobody could deny that. And then so, like, we knew it was coming. The U.S. didn't really the U.S. wasn't putting itself into like a war footing like we weren't going to respond militarily. Mm-hmm. Russia invades. We announce sanctions and then immediately the Biden administration starts getting criticized for a weak and tepid response. 
but I'm pretty sure a lot. I, I think at that point, maybe that could be a good criticism because again, sanctions take time to take hold. But, but as I think I, from what I've read, it seems like the administration did a really good job of rallying the troops. Like Germany was a holdout. Switzerland, getting Switzerland on board is huge. A lot of, you know, everybody knows the meme about Swiss banks, Swiss bank accounts, mm-hmm. like a lot of Russian oligarchs and just anybody, Russian criminals. I'm sure Putin stashes money in Swiss bank accounts. So having them on board is huge. And I think that I think they've actually done a really good job of getting this like one voice even I mean, even China has basically condemned the attacks, uh, whether they're going to like backdoor bankroll them or not uh, is yet to be seen. But I think I think this has been the correct response. I think I think we're in a like NATO has obviously gone into a more defensive posture because of this. But do you think that we should? I know I saw Rep Kinzinger call for a no fly zone in uh, Ukraine. Do you think that's a good idea? I think it's a terrible idea because the only way you enforce it is to go to war. I mean, I, th- I think you, you can't, I mean, it's like being a parent. You don't establish rules that you can't actually confirm or being followed and aren't ready to give a consequence to if they're broken. Establishing right. a North fly zone means you put military aircraft in the air and if somebody tries to break it, you shoot them down. So unless you're ready to go to war with Russia over this, then that's not a realistic option, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't want to sound callous. I want Ukraine to be free. I want their people to survive and minimize casualties. But this is their fight. Like we can send them as much support and aid as we possibly can. But unless something drastically changes to where Russia attacks a U.S. interest, I, I don't. I can't imagine putting any American military lives in danger over this. Like it's not. And this is. And what's crazy is like for people who think that. The U.S. is is you know a warmonger and is looking for a fight. It's like this is the exact opposite. We we are doing everything we can to avoid direct confrontation. We have we were just talking about reasons to go to war or invade or whatever. We have a you brought it up. We have a clear clear reason. We have a treaty with Ukraine that we would protect them, protect their sovereignty because they gave up their nukes. So we have a lawful reason to go into Ukraine and help them defend their country. I don't. There's a debate of whether we should honor that or not, but I think that the the general sentiment is that this is their fight, but we want to support them in other ways as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, I mean goodness, I mean, this is where it's hard for me to stay consistent to like you know libertarian principles and, and especially principle, principles of non-intervention. But Ukraine is what I wish Afghanistan would have been, like a strong government that's going to stay together, that's not going to run, a military that's going to stay there and fight, that's going to be inspire the citizens by their courage to take up arms with them and, and defend your home. And man, there's a whole lot of me that wants to be like, yep, we're there with you. Like, you, you've earned my respect. You, you've earned my admiration. I want to be there beside you. But, but there's just a harsh reality to war where it's not winning and losing. It's surviving and dying. And if you start putting American troops into war for any reason, you have to recognize that families aren't going to be put back together. Somebody's not coming home. Lives aren't going to be put back together. Like there's significant forever consequences that come with war. So it better be worth it. And and to me, what my principles are is when you sign up for the U S military, you swear to protect and defend the constitution. You don't swear to protect and defend democracy all over the world or freedom all over the world. So, so, so I just feel like you're committing troops and, and being disingenuous with troops when you commit them to causes beyond what you ask them to pledge to. And that's where I would say, like, as much as I admire Ukraine, as much as there are several things we can do to help them here, we, 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 we can't get involved directly. And, and I, I couldn't, in clear conscience, if I was in any position of authority, um, ask my countrymen to put their lives on the line when our national interest is not in any way in question right now. I, I think I think Vietnam forever changed our outlook, right? Like we, if Vietnam went better for us, we might be in Ukraine right now helping them. But I like, I think, I think the taste for that sort of world police defend democracy at all costs really went out the window after, after Vietnam. It's really hard to convince not only service members, but the, the public at home to like support wars where the U S interest is really murky or really disconnected from you know, from the the fight. If Ukraine was in NATO, I don't. I think it's no brainer, right? I don't think we. I, if, if Ukraine was in NATO and we didn't help defend them, NATO would dissolve and go away. 
Like Man, that point, what's the point, right? Like right, yeah. If, <laughs> If 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 a NATO country, if Estonia or whoever else was attacked tomorrow, and we didn't go to defend them, it's over. NATO's over. Like we can completely relinquish any and all you know military alliance with most of Europe at that point. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, that's that's why I guess I'm I'm somewhat torn with NATO um, for a couple of different reasons. But I mean, on the one hand, it's you're not the world police. You. Not, not everything I just said, like you can't commit our troops to defend somebody else when that's not what they, they committed to and, and, and sworn to. On the other hand, since World War II is popular on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else, because that's all we compare things to anymore, um, there is a certain reality to you can stay out of conflict so long to the point where when you need to defend yourself because your, self in, your, your national interest is threatened, you have no allies, no logistical herbs, no supply chain support. And you have no realistic chance of, of fighting and winning. So you kind of have that lesson, um, at least in the 20th century from World War II, where you got to get in before it's too late. But for the rest of the 20th century, you also have lessons where you don't need to intervene just because you can or just because you have moral justification. I mean, there has to be some balance of, of, of wisdom tied to the uh, justice aspect of, of considering war and peace. Yeah, it's a it's a cost benefit. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's not like I think most Americans, except for a very small subset, are like, wish we could do more. You know, if we could guarantee that that defending Ukraine and pushing back Russian forces wouldn't lead to World War Three, I think most people would have more of an appetite for it. I'm not saying the majority or anything, but like I think the main kind of like goes along with the no. Uh, no fly zone thing is like if we, if the U S shoots down Russian aircraft over Ukraine, no matter how we feel about how legal the war is or their motivations or whatnot, like if we shoot down and kill Russians over Ukraine, that's basically going to draw us into a bigger conflict with Russia. Like it's not, it's not going to contain itself within the borders of Ukraine. And that's, that's the issue. Yeah. And again, I think, man, I mean, just because we have the strongest military in the world doesn't mean that's our only or best lever. I mean, we talked about this, um, I want to say on our, on our episode um, about China and the Chinese influence, but I mean, trade and economics is a powerful tool um, to combat um, military expansionism, right? So when you basically, when you enter into any kind of commerce uh, on the global market, you consider what this nation stands for and what they do. And if at the time of entering into any kind of uh, commercial agreement, you, um, you recognize that you are going to spend your money to essentially support or strengthen what they're doing. And if what they're doing is so bad, whether it be women's rights or LGBTQ rights or whatever, then maybe you don't do business with them. If at the time you start business, everything's good, but then they start to be aggressive and start taking over countries, you have a lot of levers there you can pull to pretty quickly make it hard to actually have an offensive war. And then if you know that's the character of the nation and that's the foreign policy they they pursue, you don't have to start doing business with them again. Um, I mean, there's not a shortage of people to do business with. And I think that's where you just have to recognize how many levers you can pull to influence uh, activity, you know, across the, across the spectrum of all this. So from Russia's perspective, this is obviously hasn't gone as well as they had hoped. What do you think that like, I'm obviously she's Putin. I assume he's the lead driving force in all of this and his inner circle. is mostly just yes, men. Do you think they just thought it was going to be a quick, like, so at first it seemed like they just wanted, or I mean the, the stated purpose was they just wanted those Eastern, uh, that Eastern territory in Ukraine. Yeah. But it's been very clear that since they brought troops into Belarus and come from the Northern uh, portion they want to take the whole country they're going after kiev they, they want all of ukraine like what was their what was their their perfect end goal like they just take ukraine and and nobody was going to notice like what like what i i can't imagine they thought they were going to do this and not i guess they just thought that like they would be insulated from sanctions like they wouldn't hurt as bad or that the, the that the world is in such disarray that they wouldn't be able to come together like this to have a unified front 
Yeah, it's hard to tell because you don't have access to classified information that you need to really assess, you know, their confidence level. But if I had to guess, I would say they thought they could do this in a long weekend and sanctions wouldn't have time to work. You know, I think in their mind, they'd be able to do what they needed to do militarily uh, from a military standpoint in 72 to 96 hours. And then everybody would be mad at them. And yeah, they might be sanctions after that, but it wouldn't hurt as bad because you're not spending more money trying to conquer a country. So the fact that it's taken, you know, over a week now and they're still fighting and they still haven't accomplished, you know, many of their, their like believed uh, objectives from a military standpoint, I think that's what has been probably the biggest national embarrassment for Putin um, and the biggest setback to his grand scheme of, of plans here. Yeah, I think the blueprint was like Crimea in 2014. Like you just take it and then suffer the consequences and hope they're not that big. But yeah, it's interesting that... Uh, it's backfired so much as far, like we mentioned earlier, it's as far as Sweden and Finland <laughs> getting on board with, with joining NATO and, and all that. I've seen a lot of videos and right now on Twitter, the last week has been the most misinformation and disinformation I've seen about uh, a topic in a long time. Videos that are from like years ago and they're purporting to be, you know, from today or yesterday or scenes from a video game as as like uh aa fire in ukraine and it's actually from a video game stuff like that but i have seen lots of demonstrations across russia it doesn't it's it's not you know millions of people by any means but it's a lot of considering russia has basically a no protest our our decisions law and can arrest you on site it seems like it's it's not very popular among the russian people and i can't imagine why it would be popular yeah, I think that's one of the biggest differences between now and, and maybe, you know, 40, 50 years ago, it seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, and everybody's just scared into submission, but Russian citizens had a different understanding of national pride, and it was built on military conquest, and it was built on growing the, you know, the, the Russian empire and kind of being the defenders against the evil West. And now it seems like much more of the population is, we, we, we've already We've already done this. It didn't work. It wasn't good. Why are we doing this again? You know, and I think I think also, I mean, they've had several decades now of kind of being a pretend democracy <laughs> and people are probably fed up with that, too, that the yeah, they get to vote. But I mean, how, how much did Putin win the election by last time? Didn't he get like 90 percent of the vote and he always gotten like 80 or 90 percent of the vote? Yeah. Who knows how fair and it was rigged. <laughs> Stolen elections. <laughs> but historically through his reign and as a uh, president slash dictator, uh, he's always had high approval ratings and high voter share. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it certainly doesn't seem. And I think, too, it's harder to control people with, with social media and how interconnected we are just on a personal level. It's harder to push a certain narrative in some ways, at least. In other ways, it's it's easier to, uh, you know, try to try to uh, influence a narrative. But. And like I say, I mean, they, they had what, like 1,500 people protesting about a kilometer away from a red square? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of them got arrested, but yeah, I think it's hard to keep like, that under wraps. Yeah, something like 6,000 arrests throughout the country Yeah, uh, over protesting and whatnot. Yeah, it's just a real interesting gamble that he took. And I feel like it was just kind of his, he's on his, what, he's 60 in his 60s, late 60s, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that he's going to die anytime soon, and he'll probably rule until he dies. Uh, which could be soon. This might be too stressful for him. <laughs> yeah, given what's going on. Well, I'll, I'll bring it up in a minute. Hot take. But yeah, it just seemed kind of like a last-ditch effort to kind of cement his legacy. Like he's wanted to reclaim some of this territory that the USSR lost. I've seen multiple open source profiles of him that said like he's one of his life goals is, or one of his deepest embarrassments was, you know, USSR breaking up at due to losing to the U.S. in the Cold War. Like, that's not necessarily his prime or, or driving motivation, but it's one of them. And so this all makes sense under that, under that lens, under that context uh, of what he's doing. So, like, I, I have a feeling that much like how I can't understand exactly what he saw in this plan, I have a feeling, you know, because it's a pretty brutal dictatorship there, that nobody was telling him no, but I have a feeling that if he was going to do something that was going to risk the lives of his inner circle or again, like if he was planning on launching a nuke, I my hot take is I, I think they would coup him and probably kill him. Like it'd be a, a bloody end for him. I don't think that 
if he's back, if he's if he perceives himself as back into a corner and he and he's losing, this is not just talking about Ukraine. I mean, like if something else were to happen and the U.S. got seriously involved, that he would launch nukes. Like I think he, I think he himself would want to launch nukes. But I don't. I honestly don't think that uh, the the military slash his inner circle would allow that to happen. I think that's that's the suicide option. If Russia launches a nuke, they're gone as well. Like nobody's surviving. Yeah, and that's like my biggest concern is. Uh, I mean, he's a proud guy, and proud people typically don't take defeat well. So my main concern is that this continues to go poorly for him. It becomes clear that you know, without some extreme measures. He, he's not going to get uh, accomplishes his objectives here from a military standpoint. Um, and that'd be a pretty big embarrassment. So then what does he do? Because I don't think he's just going to leave and say, well, we tried too bad. But to your point, even in the like, darkest days of the Cold War, you know, we're, we're kind of starting to learn now as things get declassified on all sides that there were always back channels that were communicating because there were patriots on both sides that didn't want to see this come to a nuclear war and didn't want to see nukes used. So, yeah, you would hope that people within his inner circle, if he started to lean that direction, would figure out some way to to put an end to it. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's not my faith in Putin that, that he wouldn't launch nukes. I think that he absolutely has the capability because he's a psychopath. I just think that, like, the people around him wouldn't let it happen. Yeah. And then that, yeah, that, that'd be and I guess that's me. My, my point, too, is like that would be the only saving grace we'd have is it, not so much his you know, in a moral compass or whatever, but more so there are people around him who realize this would be, this would be the time when people became offensive against Russia and you'd have probably the largest military force ever assembled all attacking one country. And at that point, like who comes to their defense because they use nukes on a country they invaded for really no, no defensive reason. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it, it would all end poorly for Russia if nukes were used. That's that's my main justification for not being so worried about a nuclear war. But it's always I mean, it's always like the risk is not zero. I just don't think it's very high. Like, I don't. Yeah. And the, I mean, the risk hasn't been zero since since the invention of the nuclear weapon. Right. right. So Exactly. It's, it's exactly. And it'll, and it'll never be zero. So yeah. it is what it is. So the last topic I wanted to touch on is more adjacent to this. We, we kind of brought them up earlier. China is kind of waiting in the wings. They have condemned the attack but they're obviously not part of this pact to freeze out Russia. Neither neither country is as close as they used to be during the old communist heydays of the Cold War. But given we, we've already had an episode on China, they're sitting here watching the U.S. response. They might be more insulated from sanctions than Russia was. Mm-hmm. Do you think this emboldens them to make a move on Taiwan? I mean, I think Taiwan is is a totally different situation in the sense of how they're connected to the rest of the uh, international community and, and defenses that they already have kind of in place with the national community. But to your point, China is much more much better protected from you know from these uh, economic sanctions that have been put on Russia. I think with how poorly it's went, I think with just the global attention being being put on you know kind of the uh, imperialist mindset, I, I think. It would have emboldened them had this been more successful and had it been quick and over with and had we done nothing of significance to put an end to it. But I think the way we were able to rally international support, um, I think the way that people have kind of stood up against this, both from a government standpoint with militaries and just from a a global population, uh, I think it's less likely they're emboldened now as, as I feared they would be when the invasion started. And I thought it would be quicker and more successful. Yeah, I've never, I mean, I had this argument last week, which was a, another Discord argument and a Twitter argument. I, I, the parallels aren't the same. The, the calculus is not the same. Taiwan is a much better partner and a much more important partner to the U.S. than the Ukraine is. So to think that we would just sit by, regardless of what the State Department, the official stance of the United States government is like Biden said in October, we would defend Taiwan, Taiwan, like regardless of him, I think we, there's a lot more stomach for defending against China than uh, against Russia. If this was, you know, at the height of the Cold War, I think I think the calculus is a little bit different with Ukraine. But because we yeah. have because Russia hasn't been our number one, you know, enemy or target or whatever, whatever word you want to use. And China has like, I think, I just think the calculus for Taiwan is much different. I think we would have, I I mean, I had this debate, like would the U S even, even have a military response if China invaded Taiwan? I absolutely think they do. I simply, simply for the fact that 
the U.S. Navy is the strongest Navy the world has ever seen. It dwarfs the Russian Navy. It dwarfs the Chinese Navy. We are much better equipped. Uh, and if people don't know this, Taiwan is an island. It's not <laughs> It's not Ukraine. They don't share a land border with China. It would be a naval amphibious battle. And that's one where even though we are closer to China's border and they would have a lot of support. Like when it comes down to it, if you can't get your troops onto Taiwan's island, you're not going to win win a war against against us, basically. So I think I think just from that simple fact, on top of what we've said before, like I think that our reliance on Taiwan for semiconductors on a host of things and just that mostly just to counter Chinese aggression. Like again, I think I t- tweeted something on. Romney saying that Russia was our biggest geopolitical threat in 2012 and people were bringing it up again like like he was right. Uh, I don't think he was right then and he's certainly not right. This is like Russia invading Ukraine does not change <laughs> the, their geopolitical threatness. I think it's been the same for this whole time basically. But China, like, well, the reason we did an episode on China in our first like four or five episodes is because they are the number one threat to us. So I think I think if we let them just take Taiwan that would be a much bigger deal to us. I mean, it sucks to say, but it's a bigger deal to us that if China took Taiwan than if Russia takes Ukraine. Like, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I agree with that. But I would also think there's such a different mindset when you think about, between Russia and China, when you think about the way they want to exert influence. Like, Russia historically has always been just full of bravado and, and full of I dare you to stop me kind of attitude. China's been more slow play, more methodical. Well, honestly, quieter. Like, it, I mean, it's, it's not well publicized um, or broadcasted, for instance, the way they are practically colonizing any significant aspect of African real estate. But what they do is they go in there with these unrealistic loans, basically like a payday loan. And when you can't pay them back, written within the terms of the loan are if you can't pay us back, we get to control this airport. We get to control this seaport. That's how they've historically exerted influence and, and gained favorable position. Contrary to Russia, which is much more militaristic and their way of thinking of gaining influence. So I think even when you think about Taiwan, although it's not absurd to say they would use their military to try to, you know, by military conquest, take it over. It would just be a typical of how they've performed over the last hundred plus years with regard to influence and uh, global positioning. So I, I think when you look at that, you just need to look for the more subtle long-term strategic goals and how they're going to try to accomplish them without, like you said, using the military, because that's just going to be a much harder, harder pursuit for them, given where we are in the Pacific and our ties to Taiwan. So uh, it's, it's not, it's not, it's definitely not apples to apples, but it's probably not even apples to oranges just because of the mindsets of the two, the two nations and the two uh, leaders of the nations. Yeah, I, I just brought it up because I saw so much of it. Like, we're letting Russia take Ukraine, Taiwan's next. And it's just like, it's not even comparable. They're like, they're two completely separate issues. And just, again, the simple fact that Taiwan means more to us than Ukraine is is enough to, to dissuade China, I think. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. And I like we said at the top of the show, like, I don't think we're going to have World War III. Like, we're, we're pretty set on letting this play out and seeing if if they come to like we're going to force we would like to force them to the table and resolve this peacefully but i i think we're just going to whether russia if russia even if russia wins like we're not going to do anything majorly different i think it'll i think we'll fast track putting finland and and sweden and nato but as far as like we're not mm-hmm. same thing with Crimea, right? Like we didn't really do anything. And it's the it's the same. It's the same situation. Georgia. Let, let me ask you a question. Cause I know you're very much on the uh, on the side of you know um, wanting to fight climate change and that being a significant threat. Would you change your energy policy? Would you want President Biden to change his energy policy at least in the short term to you know kind of help sink the market value of uh, Russian oil? I mean, because I mean we talked about it before. We have oil reserves. We have different mechanisms we can pull there and that's their biggest natural resource uh i mean i think he the i don't know if he's announcing it in the state of the union tonight or if it's just part of uh part of the rollout like they are he is going to release some of the strategic oil reserves i think nuclear explosions in the world is probably worse for the environment than burning a couple (laughs) hundred thousand extra gallons of fuel Mm -hmm. so it's more of a 
uh, lesser of two evil situation. I think this, I think on the flip side, I think this is going to push Europe into more renewables quicker because they need to get off that Russian oil teat. Yes. Uh, I think that's, that's the, that's the shift. That's the goal. I've seen a lot of this, uh, Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline and, you know, that, that would be really helpful right now. And it's like, yeah, you can't make decisions in hindsight. He made his decision then. And like, even, even if they restarted the, the Keystone pipeline now, like it's not going to help us for years. Like, what are we talking about? Like they have to build it. <laughs> like it's not, oh. built, it's not built and just shut off. Like they got, they would have to build it and start pumping all that oil. And it, like by that time, who knows what gas prices, a lot of the reason oil prices have been high in general is because of OPEC. It's not because mm-hmm. of, the Russia issue. Yeah, I know. And, and, and while I, I generally disagree with like a lot of his energy policy, the Keystone XL wouldn't, uh, that's, a, that's a irrelevant factor in this particular thing. That's why I mentioned oil, oil reserves specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, that's ready. Like that's something we can put on the market immediately. And, you know, just basic laws of supply and demand. If you increase the supply, the price for it is going to, to go. Yeah, it's a, it's a strategic oil reserve. This is about as strategic a use of it as you can get. So why not use it? Yeah. And, and my thought, too, is like this is not going to affect climate change at all, even for the most like staunch believers and those who are most fearful of that. Like this isn't going to affect it at all, but it can drastically impact. Drastically might be strong. It can it can noticeably impact the ability of Russia to make war, which is why I would think like hopefully he. He doesn't just do it a little bit. He does it in a way that continues to cripple Russia um, yeah. to where they have no choice but to draw back because this has went on too long and they can't fund it anymore. Yeah. And as I said, I don't really follow lefty Twitter. So I haven't honestly, I haven't really seen the climate debate on that. To me, as far as oil goes, the demand right now is going is the same regardless. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to gasoline is an inelastic product. It doesn't matter what the price is. Everybody in America needs gasoline. Like there's no I mean, I, I say that like obviously if you have an electric car or whatnot, whatever, don't be stupid. But like it's not the price of gasoline is largely irrelevant. People are going to buy as much as they need all the time. Releasing the strategic oil reserve doesn't change that. It's just going to ease prices and put pressure on Russia. The majority of that environmental aspect of it is acquiring that oil, pumping it out of the ground, leaks, all that sort of thing. Like these, these are already in barrels and storage somewhere. So that's already that carbon cost or whatever, however you want to frame it is already done. It's just their strategic oil reserves. They're, they're already there. So yeah, I think I don't, I don't have any concerns as far as, as environmentally with releasing the strategic, like, like I said, it's literally there for moments like this. I don't think it should be used willy nilly to lower gas prices uh, leading into an election year. But when a strategic rival is doing what they're doing and we can hurt them and help the American pocketbook at the same time, like it's a no brainer. No, I, I agree. So uh, I think that would be one of the biggest things I would hope he does in addition to, and I didn't know he was announcing that tonight. I hadn't seen that anywhere. Yeah. In addition to the sanctions, like hurt their biggest cash crop, essentially, and, and, and shrink the, the value, the monetary value of it. U.S. and 30 countries commit to release 60 million barrels of oil from strategic reserves to stabilize global energy markets. So there you go. That was as of today, March 1st. Uh, like I said, I don't know if that was part of the State of the Union or not, but I remember reading that. So it wasn't part of the uh, it wasn't part of baseball's lockout negotiations, so that's why I missed it. Right, you're. I mean, you got more important things to worry about, not you know being on the verge of World War Three. But yeah, we're <laughs> the United States is releasing 30 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So yeah, that's happening, which is good. Uh, we'll see if they release more. Uh, I would love for gas prices to go down. It's. I mean, I've been getting gas at Costco for years now, and it's still putting a dent in, uh, you know, the weekly budget. (laughs) And especially for me, I used to live 15 minutes from work. It was like eight miles and I would use, you know, one thing of gas lasted me weeks. And now that I move further away on top of commuting to and from school, I'm going through a tank of gas shorter than a week. So it's a really good, really good timing for this all to be happening for me. But with kids in school, you don't have a social life you have to commute to. So that's, you know, basically zero. Yeah, it, all, so. it all breaks even, I guess. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's my life. But if you want to hear me complain more about school and life and gas prices, please give me a follow at the rake, but the A is a four. 
at Thomas Black underscore 86 if you want to hear him whine and complain about baseball lockout. At OVO Deep State is the show's Twitter where we post all the episodes. Join the Discord in the link below. I already told you at the top of the show, but it's it's a good place to have some conversations. It's generally friendly, generally not hostile, generally a quote-unquote safe space. to As long as you're arguing in good faith, I'll listen to any any opinion. But generally, generally good stuff. If you're, sensitive, if you're sensitive to sarcasm, then uh, it might not be the place. Yeah, uh, heavily, he- heavily use of sarcasm. But when we're discussing serious topics, we I generally try to reduce that. On Twitter, you're going to get only sarcasm. The Discord and this podcast, I try to to limit it. But yeah, Twitter, Twitter is uh, the wild west. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you guys. If you are a baseball fan, sorry. Or if you're not, congrats. We don't have to watch baseball highlights on ESPN anymore. Really ruins that channel for me during during the summer months. How dare you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Take it easy.